Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and descended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, January 14th, we are studying Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. The evangelist writes, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching. But who is this John? St. Matthew hasn't said anything about him yet. What does he have to do with Jesus? The evangelist will begin to answer those questions for us in today's text. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Luke Zimmerman. Pastor Zimmerman serves at Calvary Evangelical Lutheran Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Pastor Zimmerman, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Uh, Thanks, Pastor Apple. Good to be back with you as well. So, Pastor Zimmerman, as we get started this morning, give us some context. We're moving from chapter 2 to chapter 3. Where have we been in Matthew's Gospel so far that's going to help us dig into today's text? Sure. Okay. Well, if we take a look at Matthew's Gospel, the way he has it set up is he's kind of interesting. He has a a genealogy about Jesus at the very beginning, which is tying our Lord Jesus back to the Old Testament figures of Abraham and David, some of those key figures uh, in the Old Testament, figures that had promises made by Yahweh the Lord to them. And then he moves into a short description about the birth of Jesus. Uh, interestingly, it's not the one we usually uh, read at Christmas time. We usually focus on Luke's gospel, of course, with the uh, movement of Joseph and Mary down from Nazareth to Bethlehem and, and the birth and the shepherds and angels. But it is important that we note that Matthew does talk about Jesus being born, being not the son of Joseph, but the son of Mary, Uh, being with child from the Holy Spirit, and that this child is going to be the Savior, the one who is going to have that name Jesus, who will be uh, fulfilling that name, the one uh, who is Yahweh's salvation, the one who will save his people from their sins and will fulfill that prophetic promise of being God with us. And then uh, Matthew also has the appearance of the Magi or the wise men who show up, the, one who, the ones who look for the King of the Jews, who we would have celebrated uh, Epiphany at our churches on January 6th. Hopefully some of our congregations did that, some of the congregations that our audience belongs to. And then we kind of move straight from a little bit of this talk about the infant Jesus kind of straight into Jesus' adulthood, uh, his being the Messiah. And so there's not any of the little incidents like um, Jesus in the temple as a youth, like Luke's gospel has. So that kind of sudden jump right into the adulthood of Jesus um, can be done, of course, by the gospel writer, Matthew. But it's kind of important to talk about this one figure who happens to be prophesied by the prophet Isaiah as a person who would get the people ready for the Messiah to come. And that is the person of John the Baptist. And that's why Matthew talks about John the Baptist coming and preaching, and that his preaching is a way of getting the people ready and announcing the fact that the Lord's Messiah is present. And that's where um, Matthew wants to go with this, is say, okay, if the Lord's Messiah is present, what is he bringing with him? And what is that going to require the people um, to do it to be ready? Uh, What are they going to have to receive? What is the Messiah going to accomplish, and why is that of such significance, especially to these people who have descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and who have been anticipating this divine action 
that the Lord had said he would fully do. I want to go back briefly before we we'll read the text and get into those things with John the Baptist preaching here. But you you brought up the transition from Matthew chapter two into chapter three, and as you said, it is a it's quite a jump from Jesus as a child, which we don't get any specific accounts from his childhood, as you said, like we do in Luke's gospel. But you get that jump from him as a child all the way to him as an adult. But Matthew makes that jump as if it's no big deal, doesn't he? He, I mean. Chapter 2, verse 23, what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. And then 3, verse 1, in those days. I mean, Matthew just moves seamlessly. Is there is there some significance to that, Pastor Zimmerman, that move just from the childhood to the adult as if it was no big deal? I mean, that's a good question in terms of, you know, is it, is it highly significant? I mean, in some ways, it is isn't um it, it's not it's not unimportant let me, let me put it this way it's not unimportant what jesus does as he matures and grows into an adult um we will see that like in luke's gospel the fact that he he, he kind of grows in stature and wisdom in favor of the lord we would speak of him being obedient to his parents and that and that and that is that is true, and Luke's gospel mentions that. It would be expected, of course, of someone who would fulfill the Lord's law perfectly. But the emphasis of the Messiah's work, of Jesus' work as the Lord's anointed, is not going to be what he does as a youth, but really what he does as an adult. And in some ways, Matthew, by going kind of straight into that, is kind of moving it along. It's like, okay, you have this child who was born. He is born of the Holy Spirit, um, of the Virgin Mary. He is God with us. But kind of the activity of God with us, of being Emmanuel, is going to be primarily done by this mature and grown man. Uh, Jesus. And that's really kind of where Matthew's kind of pushing it. It's like, here, here's where the importance is going to be. And in some ways, I think it's reflected, of course, um, if our audience, of course, is familiar, when we make our confessions of faith, um, when we gather for worship, there's not a whole lot kind of talked about in terms of the child Jesus, or the teenager Jesus, or the young adult Jesus. We kind of move right from he's conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and then into the suffering under Pontius Pilate, right? Yeah. Uh, because that's where the act of salvation, that's where Jesus is fulfilling his name, the, the, the one who is God who saves, uh, who actually saves us and delivers us from our sins. That's really where the emphasis is going to be. And I think Matthew's going to put it put that emphasis there as well. Again, as, as you've pointed out, he's going to do similar things later. When you look at the whole of Matthew's gospel, the great emphasis does fall there on that same creedal emphasis on the suffering, death, burial, resurrection of our Lord. Matthew's going to spend the majority of his time there too. And so he's, he's set up who Jesus is in these first two chapters. He's showed us what kind of days we are talking about, the days of fulfillment of the Lord's promises. And now he's jumping forward without any effort at all, seamlessly into those days now as they come when John the Baptist arrives on the scene. And again, this is the first time we've met John here in Matthew's Gospel, so let's go ahead and see what Matthew has to say. Again, we're in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12 this morning. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, 
you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. There is the text for today, Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. So, Pastor Zimmerman, we've, we've talked a little bit about the transition from chapter 2 to 3 in Matthew's gospel, and that transition leads us to this man named John the Baptist. And we don't get a lot here. He just shows up all of a sudden here. We don't get the count of his birth like we do in Luke's gospel. What's so important about John the Baptist? That's probably a question we'll unpack this whole hour, but just get us started. What's so important about John the Baptist? I think for Matthew, you know, if we just kind of compare his, um, his text, perhaps to Luke's text, uh, which gives a little more of the details about when exactly these days were, um, of course, had the birth narrative of John. For Matthew, it just seems to be, it, 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 it kind of hesitate to say that because it ju- just seems to be as, <laughs> as if it is unimportant, but it is actually quite important. John's the guy who fulfills this prophecy that Isaiah gave. So, so for Matthew, it's like that, that, that's John's importance. He's the one who has come to be the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. And he does so by telling the people to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John is there um, with full divine endorsement. He's, he's the person, a preacher that the Lord has sent. He's the preacher that the Lord has established to go be the herald for his Messiah, for his Christ. And so even though you might not talk about it, all sorts of the details of how John was born, how the angel Gabriel shows up to Zacharias in the temple, um, how that priest doubts, what the angel says, the great, you know, statement, you know, his name will be John and his tongue is loosed. And, and of course, the great Benedictus, you know, that we use in some of our morning worship that tells everything John would do. Um, it's not that John is unimportant. It, he is highly important. And that background would be nice to know. But, but quite frankly, the full importance is in this statement that Isaiah gave uh, through the Lord's inspiration that there's going to be this guy coming, and when he's there, and when he's talking, and he's getting the people ready, you better know, and you, you better believe the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the Messiah is there, everybody needs to have like their radar up, and they better be looking at themselves, and are they ready to kind of have this divine encounter, to to have God present with them in a way that they have been hopefully anticipating and in a level that's greater even than when the Lord sent his prophets and did all sorts of great things. And so there's an importance right with fulfilling exactly what was spoken by the prophets. And that is what John is doing. And are the people going to be ready for this kingdom to show up? And even more importantly, are they going to be part of it? And that's really kind of what John is getting everybody in Judea um, prepared for. And that's what Matthew does even in this sort of short presentation of John, he does give us that, um, you know, that portrait, that important record of what was happening so that we also then ultimately might be ready and become part of that kingdom of heaven as well. 
You've used that term kingdom of heaven a couple times, Pastor Zimmerman, and that's obviously very important here for John's preaching. And it's it's interesting, I think, he's called John the Baptist because he's known as one who baptizes, and yet baptizing is not his only activity. In fact, when you look at the the weight of the text that we've read here today and we're going to look at, the great majority is not John the Baptist, but John the preacher. He does a lot of preaching. And that's what Matthew tells us at the very beginning is this summary of what he comes preaching in verse in verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I, I think we need to take a good amount of time to to dig into what does John mean when he says repent? What is he talking about with the kingdom of heaven? And what does it mean that that is here? Pastor Zimmerman, get us started into John's preaching. Okay. So repent, you kind of, we can take that since it's kind of the first word (laughs) that that Matthew is giving. Of course, this is the metanoia word that some of us, of course, well, all of us who went through the seminary got kind of uh, pushed into our minds, and rightly so, because it is a word that has to deal with our minds, has to deal with how, what are we thinking about? How do we, how, how do we, how do we look at the world and how do we, how do we recognize what was right? What, what did we determine to be right? And of course, when we're, when we um, commit sins, for example, even when we commit them, we kind of are saying, yeah, we think this was actually a right type of action. And then the Lord's law confronts us and there's a change in the way we think, uh, kind of a, uh, kind of a reversal saying you were going one way and now you're going back the other, turned to go back the other. And really, that is um, seen already in the Old Testament, when prophets would come and they would bring the Lord's message, and the Lord's message would confront the actions and beliefs of the people who were supposed to belong to Yahweh, and but by their faith and their acts, they were showing that they really weren't. They were actually kind of demonstrating the opposite. Well, John is telling the people, you need to be like those individuals who hopefully would have received that message from the Lord and have it affect the way they think, speak, act. To move them back to a way that the Lord declared to be righteous. Which was supposed to be the expected way of thinking, speaking, and acting that the Lord's people would have. Of course, John is primarily focused on speaking to people who are, you know, at least nominally, the Lord's people. They're the Israelites, the ones who are supposed to belong to to the Lord. Well, there's kind of a heightened reason for doing that, because the Lord in the Old Testament had spoken about a reign or kingdom, a, a rule, a, probably more a ruling that was going to be done, that the Lord was going to establish a, 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 a kingdom, establish a rule that would not be destroyed, uh, establish a, a kingdom that would be for eternity. But he's not talking about like a political realm, but rather a kind of a way of talking about a sphere of influence, a way of talking about these are my people that I govern by my, by, by my word, by my law, uh, law in the kind of fullest sense, which also would include the Old Testament sense of like promise as well. And that the people who are brought into it are brought into the way of life. But it stands in contrast to a different domain or a different rule. Uh, we can think of like the... Um, uh, the New Testament author Paul that talks about like a domain of darkness, a a a reign or kingdom that is governed by things opposite of the Lord, and really there's going to be a conflict between these two groups, a conflict between these two uh, powers, uh, two rules, two kingdoms, and you want to be in the one that is governed by. The Lord, the one who is governed by God, the one who is in the heavens and is establishing this because he says his reign or his kingdom is going to endure and that ultimately there's going to be a time when all the things opposite of the Lord, 
opposite of the Lord's will, opposite of the Lord's righteousness, are going to be swallowed up and consumed, destroyed. And so John is coming and saying, hey, guys, you know, that's not just a future thing. (laughs) It's not something in the centuries in the future that you're going to, you know, it's going to come and I don't have to deal with it. No, it's here now because the Lord's Messiah is here now, and he's, going, he's come with his authority and power um, to reign, and there's eternal consequences here, eternal consequences based upon which group you belong to and which kingdom you belong to. And so he's calling the people to kind of, you know, re-inspire. Their, they themselves don't re-inspire it, but through the word that John is bringing and the spirit working through that word, that there would be a re-inspiration of their beliefs and piety and practices and lives that are going to reflect the fact they are the people who belong in this kingdom of heaven, who belong to this kingdom of the Lord. I appreciate the way that you talked about the kingdom being a reign or a rule. So often when we hear that that word kingdom, at least in my mind, I start to think of things like castles. And for some reason, I associate the word kingdom with medieval images in my mind. And I, I, I don't think I'm alone in that. We think of a kingdom as a place, as a, a you know, it's got boundaries, it's got walls around it. And I, I go into that place. But I think what you're saying, Pastor Zimmerman, is that the kingdom of heaven, or sometimes called the kingdom of God and other, in in Luke's gospel, it's often called the kingdom of God, is not so much a place as it is God's activity, his ruling over us, his reigning over us. He's the king. And so it's not so much about the place as it is the person, the one who's ruling over us. And because, as uh, tell me if I'm getting this right, because he's here in the person of Jesus Christ, that means that his reign has come near, and that requires repentance. Is, is that what John is saying? Yeah, sure, right. So, so we don't want to think of like the, the, the emphasis of the kingdom in some ways is not like a geopolitical reality. Okay, and that's the way we normally think of it. And I, I think of castles too. I mean, quite frankly, I, I think my catechism kids think of castles when they talk about kingdom. But in many ways, it's more about the kind of the idea of affiliation or allegiance. Who do I belong to? Who is my lord? Uh, who is my sovereign? If you want to use that kind of uh, royal language, right? You know, who is the one who I belong to and has claim on me? and also governs me, has rule over me. But not just in the way of saying, like, God has reign over all things, because he's the creator of all things, but in the sense of, like, I, I'm one of his people. I, I'm, I'm one of his citizens. I'm one of the people who has a new life, which he has bestowed to me and called me out away from an allegiance or affiliation with things which were contrary to his will, contrary to his righteousness, and if left in there, I would be eternally condemned. I'm reminded what what you were saying there, Pastor Zimmerman, of of what Luther writes in the second petition of the, the Lord's Prayer in the Catechism, where we talk about thy kingdom come, and his his meaning is the kingdom of God certainly comes by itself without our prayer which is what John's proclaiming here. The kingdom of God is here. And and so what should our response be? Well, repentance. We pray in this petition that it would come to us also. And that's, that's what John here is calling these people to. The kingdom of God has come near to you, whether you like it or not, John says. What's your response got to be? Is is that the same idea, Pastor Zimmerman? Yeah, it's really the same idea, and of course, it, it, and, and it's great to jump to that petition in the catechism, because then the question is like, okay, well, how does it come to us? And it's, and it's so important, because if you take a look at the way how it comes to us, and the way Luther answers that question, it's very consistent with what John himself is doing. When we say that God's kingdom comes when our Heavenly Father gives us His Holy Spirit, so that by His grace, okay, 
So, we're, we, you know, by his graciousness, by his choice, by, by not something we deserve, but by his grace, we believe his holy word. So part of this is going to have to be believing what John says. You know, believe what John says, because he's bringing the word of God here. And lead godly lives here in time and there in eternity. And, of course, that would be the also part, you know, the, the and part. Yes, we believe his word, and the effect of his word in us is that we might also lead godly lives. And that's also part of the call to repentance that John gives. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFU. We're looking at Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12 with Pastor Luke Zimmerman, the preaching of John the Baptist coming before the Lord to prepare his way. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Tuesday, January 14th. We're looking at Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12 with Pastor Luke Zimmerman of Calvary Evangelical Lutheran Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Pastor Zimmerman, prior to the break, we were looking at John the Baptist, his preaching of repentance that God's reign is at hand. And he's doing that in fulfillment of what the Lord spoke in Isaiah chapter 40. John has the Lord's direction. He's there at the Lord's bidding. And then we get this this information about what John wears and what John eats, which I think is one of the things that we remember about John. It's it's perhaps mentioned as a bit of a side note, and certainly not the focus, but it is there. Why is that important, what John wears and what he eats? I think in some ways the most important thing is the fact that what John wears makes him look like a prophet. The attire of camel's hair and leather belt, kind of his hairy garment and a leather belt around his waist, is the way the prophet, the great prophet Elijah dressed. And in fact, you've got the, the little somewhat humorous um, account in, in Second Kings where, you know, someone is accosted by Elijah and he says, yeah, this kind of strange dude is dressed this way, you know, yeah, it's uh, kind of uh, spoke to me, and they're like, okay, wh- how exactly was he dressed? And it's like, oh, yeah, the guy's got a, like, a hair garment and a belt of leather around his waist. And he's like, oh, yeah, 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 that's Elijah. Yeah, <laughs> don't worry. It's like, well, we know all about him. Well, in, in some ways that's true. The king knew all about him, but in some ways they really didn't know all about him because they weren't heeding what Elijah the prophet said. And Elijah the prophet it's sort of interesting if we if we take a look at his uh, career, he's a person who is really directed at um, confronting the apostate people in Judea, the, the especially the leaders, the ones who had abandoned the faith and and chased after Baal. Um, but he also has a role in strengthening the faith of those who were devoted to Yahweh, the small minority. Uh, the, the ones who had their hearts and minds set on what the Lord had said, who, who were believing what the Lord had said, and were not bowing down to Baal, and in many ways were suffering because of that, because of their faithfulness. And to have a prophet come and speak the Lord's words and demonstrate the Lord's power, the, the reality that the Lord is still present, was important to bolster their faith. And in some ways, that's exactly what John is doing, too. Because if we're going to look at what he says, in the same way that he was calling for repentance and getting the people ready 
And in, in, in some of the other Gospels, they'll talk about the people were excited, thinking that the Messiah was, was definitely there, and maybe they, even John was the Messiah. That was a strengthening of the faith of those faithful Israelites. But at the same time, he will also confront the leaders. And in, in this account that Matthew gives of, uh, to us here in chapter 3, we'll even see that the confrontation that John has here with the leaders is not with Herod, although he will have that confrontation. But more importantly, he's having a confrontation with these religious leaders, as we're going to see, the Pharisees and Sadducees. Hmm. And so Before we get to John the... is this Elijah figure. Right, so so his his clothing is a, almost a uniform of sorts, identifying him as this prophet that the Lord has foretold in Isaiah chapter forty one, who comes in the spirit and power of Elijah, as we we learn elsewhere in Matthew's gospel, and so he's he's met with two different reactions. Verses five and six describe the the faithful reaction to John: those who hear his preaching, they confess their sins, and they're baptized by him. Take us into that that faithful response briefly before we move into. His, the response that he gets from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Okay. We're not told exactly um, what John preached in terms of the preaching of repentance. Um, we, can, we can backfill some of that in like Luke's gospel, where he kind of directs different groups of people. Here's, here's how living as a faithful Israelite would look like. Okay, and, and, and that's fine. We, but we don't even have to really go there. Matthew gives enough detail. The, the, the detail that Matthew gives is the fact that there were a whole bunch of people going out from Jerusalem and Judea and all the region around the Jordan, and they're going out to John. And when they're going out to John, apparently they're hearing John. They're hearing what he's preaching, whatever exactly the words of his message were. And it's effective. Because these people who are coming out to receive this message of repentance are heeding it. They're hearing it and reacting to it. And the reaction to it is they're confessing their sins, which is really when you have this message of God's law come and confront you, is supposed to get you to realize, yes, the actions you've done contrary to his law, they are sinful. They are wrong. And we're led to understand that. We're led to, and not to deny it, not to say, oh, no, 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 the Lord's law is wrong, or no, the Lord's law doesn't apply to me in any way. No, but rather what he is saying is true. And I speak now the same way about myself that the Lord's law does, that I am a sinner. Yeah, those actions were unholy and unrighteous. And we're seeing these people who are receiving that, who are having that action done among them, that they are moved to penitence, and they receive this baptism, this washing that affirms what they had indeed been led to believe, as they've received this message from John in, in, in faith, that, that they are not denying what John was saying about them, but saying, yeah, yeah, he's right. The Lord is right. The Lord's law is right. I've run afoul of it. And now I'm being corrected, and I'm being brought back into line with this righteousness of God. So that was the reaction of the people in verses 5 and 6. On the other hand, beginning in verse 7, we hear that Pharisees and Sadducees apparently had been listening to John as well, enough so that they actually come, and it sounds like they, they wanted to be baptized, but John won't let them because something different is going on in their hearts. Pastor Zimmerman, tell us a little bit about just a, a very quick summary of who are the Pharisees? Who are the Sadducees? I think sometimes we just sort of gloss over that and think when we see those names, we're like, well, those are the bad guys in the Gospels. Well, not, generally they are cast in a very negative light, but it'd be good to, to get a little background. Who are these, these folks that Matthew introduces us to here? And then what does John tell them, and why is he so harsh with the law that he preaches to them? Okay, so we've got this kind of idea of the Pharisees and Sadducees as religious elites in Israel, and that's a very good idea, because <laughs> it's right. They were. <laughs> but they're two different categories of people. The Pharisees were laity, lay people, uh, devoted to keeping the Lord's law and a tradition of interpreting the Lord's law, which also usually included establishing 
other ordinances or rules that were set up by them to kind of separate them from other believers and to really kind of show perhaps a super devotion to God. Although we find out later when Jesus speaks about them, um, a lot of times their ordinances they came up with weren't actually very good <laughs> interpretations of God's law and sometimes gave the false illusion that they were actually keeping the fullness of God's commands when they actually weren't. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they are the priestly caste. Uh, their people, they were mostly priests, uh, devoted to the temple, to the ceremonies of the temple. They are political animals, maybe a bit more than the Pharisees. They are aligned with the high priest. It also kind of made them more or less somewhat aligned with the governing authorities appointed by Rome, uh, because that's part of the existence in a controlled state, an occupied state. We find out later in the Gospels that some of the issues with the Sadducees is just how much are they actually believing what the Scriptures say. Um, as some people kind of put them, they're theologically uh, or kind of sort of conservative in ceremonial sort of things, but very liberal in teaching, so much so that there's kind of a good question of whether they even believe in the afterlife, in the resurrection. And that's kind of a big problem. <laughs> So there's kind of a question, though, is why is John so blunt with them and, you know, calling them a brood of vipers? And, and I think some of it is included in the question that he asks them. Because he doesn't just say, you brood of vipers. He then asks them, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That's a real kind of question of whether the Pharisees and Sadducees believed that there was a wrath to come that would actually affect them. Or maybe to put it slightly differently, did they believe there was a divine wrath to come and that at this moment, if the Lord would bring that divine wrath, that they would be subject to it? Are they actually believing they are outside the Lord's law, that they've run afoul of the Lord's law, that they actually are in a hazardous position? which is what the people who have come and are confessing their sins are believing. But are the Pharisees and Sadducees actually coming to confess sins and to believe that they are actually kind of outside God's grace and favor? And I would contend that they really weren't believing that. No, it doesn't seem that way. And I think the reason that they don't believe that, John lays that out especially in verse 9, it would seem that the Pharisees and Sadducees don't believe they're in any danger, not because of repentance, not because of faith, but rather because of bloodline. We have Abraham as our father. That's the excuse that apparently they're giving. But John won't let that stand, will he, Pastor Zimmerman? No, he won't. And I think we could take these two things in verses 8 and 9, put them in tandem. And the fact, the fact that John has to say, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, is indicating that there's something amiss with the Pharisees and Sadducees, that they aren't in line with the Lord's law. Um, they need to be confronted by the Lord's will expressed in the scriptures and to, and to bring correction. And don't get this idea that you're not in need of it. Don't get this idea that just because you descend from Abraham, that everything is everything is kosher and good. Everything's great. Because the Lord already in his past has dealt with people like you. <laughs> uh, John could point out to all these uh, Pharisees and Sadducees that, yeah, we can, um, we can find all sorts of places in the scriptures that when the prophets came, that they spoke to the religious elite. And just because you were in the religious elite and you were the son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did, did, did not make you immune from God's law being applied to you. In fact, it should be most applied to you. You're not ignorant of these things. Uh, in fact, when we had our study of Amos, if you, our audience might recall, there's an awful lot that the prophet Amos was directing at people who would be just like these Pharisees and Sadducees who thought, 
everything is fine. We're the Lord's people. Everything's cool. Look how well everything's going for us. And really, there needed to be a confrontation of what they were actually believing, what they were trusting, and then how was that manifesting uh, itself and what they were doing. So what? Just to to go back a little bit further to or a little bit sure. to verse eight, the bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. It seems that I mean, that's what they weren't doing. What what does that mean to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Well, bearing fruit is a kind of a phrase or concept that we find in the scriptures. Um, it's used Old Testament and the and New Testament. In fact, Jesus himself will, will, will use it. And it's really kind of an image to talk about what gets produced by the people who have faith in the Lord. What gets produced because they've been connected with the Lord. They are his people. Um, They've been chosen by him. They've been brought into fellowship with him. They've actually had new life created in them by him. They've gotten um, the the words of the Lord, the words of promise, which have been... um, which have been brought to them and, and they believe, well, what effect does that have? And, and we could kind of see the examples of this in the kind of practical things that the Lord actually instructs his people to do. There's a whole kind of set of behavior, if you will, that the Lord um, expects his people to demonstrate in, again, what they think, speak, and act. That is not produced by nature by us fallen humans, but a person who has been regenerate, who has been brought into uh, fellowship with the Lord, who has had the Spirit work in them, there are things that that Spirit produces. And that's going to be ultimately kind of the image Jesus will use when he talks about being, you know, I'm, I'm the vine, you're the branches, you, you produce fruit. It's the same image John is using here. It's the same image Paul will use when he talks about like the fruits of the Spirit like in Galatians. These are the things which are created in us that um, happen because we have had a new life established in us by God himself. That fruit imagery continues in John's preaching into verse 10. He talks about an axe being laid to the root of the trees and, and trees not bearing good fruit are cut down. It sounds like he's, he's talking about the final judgment. Is that what he's talking about, Pastor Zimmerman? Yeah, it really, it really, is, it really is the final judgment. You know, when he talks about the trees that don't bear good fruit are cut down and thrown to the fire, yes. That is, um, it's consistent, again, with Old Testament imagery of judgment that way. You even have um, the Lord speaking through Isaiah, talking about, I've got a vineyard, it was my vineyard. I planted it. It doesn't produce any good grapes. It, it's just a, it's a lousy vine, even though I did all these great stuff for it. And so I'm just going to destroy it. And that's the judgment. That, that, that's the judgment that will ultimately be done at the end of the age. However, John also says, yeah, the axe is right down near that root right now. It's there. Judgment is already starting. The sorting is already starting. The confrontation of the Lord's law with people is already starting. And while ultimately that judgment will be done at the end, um, it kind of has a beginning now with the way that we are being evaluated by, by God's law. And so John then brings his sermon full circle here at the end. Remember, he, he started, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is near. Well, again, why is that kingdom here? Because the king is here. And so as John's sermon concludes here in Matthew chapter 3, he again points to that reality, to that king who is here. So what, is, what does John say about the one coming after him, the one who he is preparing the way for here at the end of his sermon, Pastor Zimmerman? Sure. It's very, it's very clear. John wants the people to know, okay, I am someone sent by the Lord. I am someone sent to get the way ready, but I am not the Messiah. Okay. Um, so yes, I've sp- I'll speak powerfully. I'll speak, I'll speak correctly. I will speak 
you know, with the Lord's full endorsement, but I'm pointing you to someone who's coming after me. And the one that's coming after me, if you think I'm preaching powerful stuff, just wait till he starts. <laughs> and ultimately, while I can warn you about the judgment, I can warn you about what awaits, and I can call you to repentance. It's the guy coming after me who's going to do it. He's the one who's ultimately going to be the judge. He's the one who is going to sweep the floor of the barn, and he's going to take his wheat, and he's going to store it up, and the chaff he's going to burn with unquenchable fire. And there's no, there's like no second act. Right? There, there, there's no court of appeal. There's no one, uh, there is no one greater who's coming. The one who is coming is it. And so when he shows up, you know, it's kind of the end of the line in the sense. Now, that, that can be a positive thing. It can be the end of the line in the sense that all the prophetic statements are being fulfilled. But it also means that when you saw those prophetic statements that talked about the Lord's judgment and, and the things even in the Old Testament that talked about um, kind of an eschaton, a, a new age, last day things, um, the guy who's ushering that in, he's shown up. So you kind of want to be ready. <laughs> you, 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 I mean, I know that's somewhat sarcastic and, and under, under, uh, maybe lessening it, but it really is that way. You want to be ready now because everything that it was leading up to, all the things the Old Testament was leading up to, all the things the, the books of Moses and the prophets were leading up to, the one who fulfills it is here. And you're going to have to deal with him. Now, he will deal graciously with all the people that he gathers in. He'll deal graciously with all the people who come in repentance to receive his gifts. But there's also that other part for the ones who are not with him, the ones who do reject him, the ones who are not going to be under his rule in his kingdom. The end is that burning with unquenchable fire. Pastor Zimmerman, I, when I think of John... As a preacher, I, I associate him with the season of Advent, because that's when we usually hear his preaching during the church here, is, is this time of Advent, which we've just come out of in the church here. Why do we need John as a preacher still today? Why, why do we as Christians need to hear this preaching? We need to hear this preaching because we're really in the same boat that the audience John speaks to is in. Um, we are, yes, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and, and, and it comes to us. And we can be brought into it, and we, and we, and we pray that we will be brought in and, and maintained in it. So we, we pray that the kingdom of heaven would be extended, and many people will be brought into it. But there's all sorts of false ideas that can creep into the mind that we say, you know, sin might not matter, or the Lord's law, well, it might not apply to me, or it's changed, or, or I'll get around to it someday, right? That, and that's always a difficult sort of thing, because... The someday is going to come, whether it's the last day or the day that our, the end, our earthly lives come to an end. There, there's, there is the judgment that's going to befall us. We want to be on the right side of it. And being on the right side of it is receiving the Lord's word in, in its fullness and truth and accepting what it has to say. Accepting what it has to say about our sinfulness and that there's going to be a day of judgment but we can have the day of judgment where the one who came to be our savior is the one who's also issuing his verdict that you are someone I atoned for. You are someone whose sins my sacrifice dealt with positively. You are someone who has received my forgiveness, life, and salvation. You are part of my kingdom, and therefore you can enter into the everlasting life that I've prepared for you. And that's the message we want. It's the message we want to hear. But it's also going to require that we actually believe it. And sometimes we need to be shocked into moving away from kind of uh, indolence and laziness and slothfulness. And that season of Advent kind of does that every year for us. And that, that shock that John 
gives through his preaching, he's not just doing it for shock value, but he's doing it as you as you see at the end of the text here, because he's preparing the way for the coming one. The one, as you said, Pastor Zimmerman, whose atonement covers our sin. So it it's not like John is just out to preach fire and brimstone, but but rather as as we sing in the hymn. That, that St. John the Baptist is actually the preacher of, of consolation, the preacher of good news, because he, he preaches Christ. And that's ultimately what we need from John, right? Yes. Ultimately, that's what we need for John. And ultimately, we want to be like those people who came to the Jordan confessing their sins. Because for such people, there's forgiveness. For such people, there's absolution. For such people, there is the eternal hope that's rooted in what the Messiah had done for them. And as now we're anticipating that Messiah coming back, again, whether it's going to be this year or a thousand years from now, 10,000 years from now, whenever it is, um, we're anticipating that great salvation which the Messiah has brought to us, the one who is mightier than John, the one who has baptized us with the Holy Spirit, the one who has actually brought us into his kingdom. And so there is an eternal hope, and the hope is there for the people who have had the Lord's word come to them and confront them and actually and, and actually cut through all the all the confusion, all the doubts, all that, and brought the full truth. And that's what the Lord's word does. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, whether it's preached by someone like John or is preached by the current preachers who are pointing our people to the Messiah, to the Christ, and the work that the Christ has done. Pastor Luke Zimmerman is the pastor at Calvary Evangelical Lutheran Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, helping us this morning with Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Pastor Zimmerman, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, you're more welcome to it, and I hope our audience got the message of both law and gospel, especially that comfort that the Messiah brings to his people. In the hymn, When All the World Was Cursed, it's number 346 in Lutheran Service Book, the fourth stanza, we sing this. O grant, dear Lord of love, that we receive rejoicing the word proclaimed by John, our true repentance voicing, that gladly we may walk upon our Savior's way, until we live with him in his eternal day. This is why we need the preaching of John still today, that we would voice our true repentance, that we would confess our sins, that we would know the forgiveness that Christ has given through his death and resurrection that has been washed upon us in the waters of Christian baptism, that we would continue to walk, bearing the fruit of repentance throughout our lives until he takes us into his eternal day. I look forward to being in that eternal day with you. I'm your host, here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.